So it is so good to see everybody this morning. I want to welcome everybody, not only to PBS this morning, but also to the season of Lent. <laughs> Lent began yesterday, last evening, with our Ash Wednesday service. And of course, Lent is a season that really is focused on this purpose. It is it, The purpose of Lent is to slow us down as we approach Easter and to, to encourage us to contemplate what it is that Jesus did for us on the cross and at the empty tomb as we approach Easter, but more importantly, why it was necessary for Jesus to do what he did. You know, why was it necessary that Jesus Christ go through what he went through? Why was it necessary that he suffer on the cross? Well, the answer for that is our sin. And the purpose of Lent is to help us to take seriously the sin that we have and our need for God. Because you all have heard me say before that one of the great problems of not only our faith but of our culture is that if we don't take sin seriously, if we don't take our needs seriously, then we'll never take salvation seriously. And if we don't take salvation seriously, if we don't take grace seriously, then we're not really taking the Lord seriously. And so that's, you know, that's all a big part of Lent. You know, C.S. Lewis, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, he once said that the gospel has absolutely nothing to say to the person who believes that they don't need to be forgiven. I mean, that's, I mean that, the whole gospel is really geared towards that idea. And so, so it's important that we remember that. Now, it is kind of funny, though. Last night, I, in, my, in my sermon at the Ash Wednesday service, I, I, really did, I, I really did want to impress upon the congregation and really speak to the idea that we must take our sin seriously. And I, I talked about the gravity of our sin, the, the lethality and the mortality of our sin. I talked about the, you know, how the Word of God is designed to, to really prick us and to, to remind us of our need and our, and our depth of sin. Um, but it was funny, I guess I really hammered that point home because afterwards, uh, one of the, one of the uh, senior high girls who was there, as, you know, as she was shaking my hand at the door, she said, she said wow, you really like sin. <laughs> and I thought about that and said, yeah, I think that's the problem. You know, it's, I think I, really, I like it too much and, and I need to be reminded of it. But, um, but I, you know, as we sang that song today, I, just, you know, I, I, love, you know, I love singing those, those old hymns that remind us of all of that. So today, um, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to be talking, of course, about the, about the challenges that the Israelite people fa faced in chapters 7 and 8 of, of Joshua, and particularly around this campaign at Ai. And, uh, and it's, it, I hope it's going to be a, a very interesting episode for you. Um, for me it is, because I'm a student and, and a kind of an, a very much an amateur student of military history. It's always just been, been one of those things that's been very interesting to me. But, um, but, I am, uh, but I am very interested in it, and this is a chapter that really goes to that. It's interesting that within the context nowadays of, of what we are seeing happening in Eastern Europe, just the information we have about the battles that are taking place right now in real time. Um, but we, you know, we are learning things on the moment that you know, historical commanders, historical peoples would not know for months, even years, maybe even centuries, after the fact. Um, and so, you know, so it is fascinating to see how our world is changing and how it's bringing to us the real life horrors, the real life tragedies of war. And so, you know, as a, you know, when I say that I'm, you know, I'm a student of military history and I'm interested in it, please don't take that in any kind of ghoulish or warmongering way. I, you know, I, one of the things that, 
that Robert E. Lee once said, he said, it is good that war is so terrible lest we become too fond of it. Um, when we are watching it from a distance, when we are detached from it, it is, in, it is a, a temptation to take it as something less than it is. But what is it except the, the overt expression of man's sinfulness? Um, and, and so we need to understand that as we, you know, whenever, you know, whenever we look at, you know, whenever we see war, we understand that it is because of the utter breakdown of our relationship with God and one another. And so as we approach this lesson today and as we think about what's going on in the context of our world, we, wanna, we want that, that Lenten gravity, that Ash Wednesday gravity to be upon us. Last night, one of the things I said in the service was that you know, tonight we wear a smudge of ashes on our foreheads, but the people of Ukraine are, are buried in ashes right now. And uh, as a matter of fact, the first, first thing I read yesterday morning was a, a, a news headline that came across from the BBC of a man who said, you know, begging the West, please, please close the sky to planes and missiles. Otherwise, they're going to bomb our, bomb our cities into ashes. I thought, what a, what a poignant word to use on Ash Wednesday. Um, so as we, as we go into this, you know, there's a lot to think about, but let's, Let's take, let's take a moment to just pray as we begin our study today. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we realize that we live in a world of conflict right now, a world of brutal conflict. And even though we, we talk about sin and we think about sin in the context of our own moral failings and, and rebellion against you, we understand that sin is not only measured in, in peccadilloes or in misdemeanors, but it is measured also in great tragedies and high crimes. So Lord, we ask you to help us today to, to understand uh, where we do not understand and to see clearly that which is only gloom to us. But Lord, we ask you also to cut through with your light, the light of your word, the light of your truth, and the light of your wisdom. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I don't know how many of you have ever done any traveling in Virginia. I know some of you have. Of course, one of my favorite places on earth. Um, but uh, well, let's see, why is this not coming? Oh, there we go. Uh, this is one of my, uh, one place that I have frequently visited. This is Manassas Battlefield in, uh, in Manassas, Virginia. If you're wondering what Manassas Battlefield is, and I say it's the Battle of Bull Run, then you're a Yankee. Um, because every, every battle in the Civil War was known by both a Southern name and by a Northern name. Um, the Union called it the Battle of Bull Run. The South, the, the South called it the Battle of Manassas Creek. Um, but Manassas Battlefield, or First Bull Run, was the first major engagement of the Civil War. Now, when, uh, when the Confederate forces, or the, at that point, really the very loosely organized state militias and armies began to, to coalesce, just south of Washington, D.C., to protect, to, to protect what they believed was going to be an invasion from the north, um, the Union Army uh, began to assemble. And as they did, there was a lot of fanfare. There were lots of you know, drums and fifes and flags and parades and all kinds of pomp and circumstance related to this. And when they had assembled and they began to move out to the battlefield, there were many, many residents of Washington, D.C. who decided that this was going to be a very interesting spectacle. 
And so all around the, the northern side of the battlefield were, uh, there, were, there were carriages and, uh, and tourists setting up picnics to come and watch the battle, what was supposed to be just an absolute rout of the Confederate forces. Um, well, it didn't turn out that way. It didn't turn out that way at all. As a matter of fact, it was not only the first major, uh, major battle of the Civil War, it was the first Confederate victory. Now, uh, uh, I guess historians debate about the, the degree of victory or the, you know, how, how much strategic advantage it provided or any of those sorts of things. But one thing is absolutely clear. It was an absolute moral victory for the South and an absolute moral, demoralizing defeat for the Union Army. They came into that battle completely unprepared, mostly conscripts, mostly people who were, uh, who, you know, who were not prepared, who had, who had been dressed very nicely by the War Department, um, who had what would show over the course of the war, did have some able leadership, but there was no good coordination and there was not, there was not a clear focus and goal for what the purpose of this battle was. They thought essentially of themselves really as a group that was going to essentially break up a demonstration or, or a mob, you know, just they were an armed mob and an armed demonstration. The difference on the Confederate side was because this took place in Virginia, it took place on southern soil. And by this time, Virginia and the other states had, had seceded, and this was not simply a demonstration, certainly not an, a, an event for a picnic or anything like that. It was a defense of their homeland. And whatever, whatever historical reasons we may want to think about for the causes of the war, the background of the war, for the individual soldier in, in the Confederate Army, as soon as the Union Army, many of whom had been born in the South themselves, as soon as they stepped across that, uh, that, that border, it became an invasion. And we see right now, even in Ukraine, the tenacity of people who will fight for their homeland and how they cannot be taken for granted. Now, of course, we know that the South eventually did lose um, and, uh, and, and that there, we know the way that the, the war went. We also worry now that in Ukraine, even though there is a tremendously dedicated, tenacious army of professional and volunteers in Ukraine, we also know the over, overwhelming might of the Russian army and numbers do matter. But we also see, you know, in, in the Battle of Manassas, as the, learnings, the Russians are also learning in Russia right now, that you, you only underestimate the enemy at your peril. And one of the enemies that you can never underestimate is yourself. You cannot ever underestimate your own weakness, your own flaws, your own gaps, your own, um, your own failings, your own problems. But... You know, at least at the Battle of Manassas, First Manassas, as we see happening now in, in Ukraine, the, the armies that should have been an absolutely overwhelming force were beaten back because they took all of that for granted. They took their superiority for granted. So as we turn today to the Battle of Ai, the campaign of Ai, in, uh, in the book of Joshua, we're going to see some similar, uh, some similar ideas emerging, some parallels to 
to those two situations that I've just described. Uh, in uh, the Battle of Ai is the first major campaign that takes place after the Battle of Jericho. And remember last week, we talked about the Battle of Jericho, this glorious defeat, first, first victory on Canaanite soil for the army of Israel. And everything was awesome. They, I mean, they had had the new circumcision, the new, you know, the God's victory. They crossed the, the Jordan and there was, I mean, they'd seen the miraculous hand of God moving not only to stop the water, but to bring the walls down. They had seen incredible things. Many of these soldiers had been, uh, you know, many of the fighters with the people of Israel had been on the other side of the Jordan and then fought there and seen how God had led them to victory after victory. And as they conquered, as they went in, to, as they went into Canaan, this land that God had given them, they just knew without a doubt that they could not lose. They were feeling really good about themselves. So I want you, though, to turn to the book of Joshua, to the seventh chapter. We're actually going to start in the seventh verse with a very, a very damning phrase. Verse 7 of chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Remember last week we were talking about that those wonderful words that were written about Joshua after he met with the commander of the army of the Lord? And Joshua did so. And then we see the people doing so just as God commanded, marching out in faith after they'd been circumcised, after they crossed the Jordan River, after all of these things, putting their faith completely in Him, trusting Him, following His law to the letter. Now what happens in verse 7? They aren't even outside of the city limits of Jericho, and the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Now what are the devoted things? Basically what that means is all of the booty of Jericho. Everything of value in Jericho. God said, you're going to conquer this city, but you're not going to loot it. You will wipe out the population, but you are not going to make this city a treasure trove for your own personal gain. This is not about pillaging. This is not about looting. These things are going to be dedicated to God, devoted to Him. I think that happened for two reasons. One, as an act of honor to God. Number two, well, really three reasons. Two, as a kind of a future storehouse, kind of a national treasury. And number three, to keep it out of their hands. It's a, it's a, I mean, have you ever, have you ever had like a, a relative like, like give kid money to your kids for like a birthday or Christmas? And all of a sudden, it's like, you, you know, your son, your daughter opens that card and they, they open that card and they pull out a $50 bill. They're like, hey, you know what I'm going to do with this? And you know, Morgan and I are like, nothing. <laughs> That's going in your savings account. <laughs> and if you, if you have a request, you may fill out the proper paperwork. Yeah. Um, I mean, because we, you know, we, we get the money and we do stupid things with it, right? As, you know, if we're immature, no matter how old we might be at the time. Um, and, and I think that that's part of it. I think God wanted to make sure that, that the people did not turn this into a, an adventure of profit. Because that's what everybody else did. That was, I mean, that was, the, that was the, the pattern of the Canaanites and the Sumerians and the Egyptians and everybody else. And so, they were in the city 
And guess what? Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Now I want you to notice, it says Israel broke faith. But as we read on, we're, we're going to see that it wasn't that everybody went into a, a house in Jericho and started taking all the silvers or taking the TVs off the wall and stuff like that. No. We're going to see that this is one guy. And yet it implicates all of Israel. For Akan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, oh no, those are supposed to be the good guys, right? Of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. I mean, here's a guy who comes in with the army. He was marching around the city with everybody else. And he went in at his appointed time. And hey, there's nobody around here. Nobody's going to miss this. Nobody's going to miss this stuff. And so he takes it, takes it for himself. Okay, just a little footnote there. And then the camera swings in another direction. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Ai is another town just up the road. Jer Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up. But let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. And so about three thousand men went up from there for the, uh, went up went up there from the people. Okay, so spies go out. They look at the city of Ai. They say, "This town's nothing. We just we just took over Jericho." We don't, need, we don't need to send the whole army up there. Let's just send, let, let's just send about you know, two or 3,000 men to go up and attack AI. That should be a gracious plenty. Should be a, I mean, that should be no problem. And what happens? I mean, it's just a very, a very simple verse. So about 3,000 men went up, went, up from AI, uh, went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. 3,000, I mean, 3,000 men is not an insignificant number, right? But they got up to the city of Ai, that, and so here's, here's Jericho, where they are. Here's the city of Jericho. Here's Ai, up in the hills. They send 3,000 men, and doesn't say how many men came out from Ai, but these 3,000 all of a sudden turned and ran. You know, maybe it's not just, you know, might. Maybe it's not just power. Maybe it's not just supernatural victory that God gives to the people. Maybe it's courage. Every other battle, they've had the ark. Every other battle, they've had the priest. Every other battle, they've had the endorsement of God. Now they're kind of going up there on their own. You know, they sent scouts. Pfft, there's nobody up there. No big deal. We'll just send 3,000 men up there. Again, pretty good number. But what is it, again, what does it say? They fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Cherubim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now, wait a minute. We sent 3,000 men up there and they, 
I mean, every life is precious, but they killed 36. That's, that, that's, that's just over 1%. Again, every life is precious. I mean, somebody else do the math. I'm a theologian. Um, but that's not much. They still had 2,060, whatever it is, left. Why did they turn and run? Why did their hearts melt before them? Maybe they were not as strong as they thought they were without God, and maybe they were not as gutsy as they were without God. Maybe the heart of courage that they had had all the way across the wilderness and all the way to, the, all the way to Jericho, that too was a spiritual gift. Whatever it was, it deflated. Whatever air had been in that balloon was gone. And they turned and ran. We still don't know how many people came out of Ai, but it was enough to turn away a thousand, a, a, an army of 3,000, which they thought would be plenty of men to take, this, to take this city. So verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust, they actually put ashes and dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh, seriously? You know, we're always looking for parallels between Joshua and Moses and the people now and the people then. You know, okay, what's, what is different about that phrase? Have we heard a phrase that rhymes like the, with that before? Why did you bring us out here into the desert, to the wilderness? Send a, let us go back to Egypt. Why did you bring us across the river? Let us go back to the other side of the Jordan. I mean, come on. I mean, we've heard this before. Every time they, you know, every time they went, well, apparently, it's some, in somebody's mind, Jericho, even though it was clearly a supernatural victory, clearly they were either, one, assuming it was them, or two, completely taking God for granted. Because now, they also, they're always willing to take credit, but now what? They're also blaming God. God, you let us down. I mean, again, 3,000 men went up to Ai and were turned away. Why? How many? We don't, I mean, whatever it was, the Bible is clear that it was a rout and it never should have happened. It never should have happened from the sense of they should have never gone up there without consulting God first. And, and they should never have assumed they could do it without Him. And so, so here what we see is a confluence of several deep spiritual problems that, that we began to think, didn't we, last chapter, last few chapters, we began to think had been purged out of them. I mean, all those years in the wilderness, surely their fear, surely their rebellion, surely all of that has been, has been beaten out of them on the anvil of the wilderness, right? Not wrong. This story of the conquest of Ai is really about about our rebellion against God and the sense of we're taking God for granted. Because what are the things that they took for granted? First of all, they took for granted that because they were God's people, everything they did, everything they did would be blessed. You ever feel like you know, you've heard that one before? 
Are we still singing that tune? You know, how often do we pray, Lord, help us to do what you're blessing instead of, Lord, bless what we're doing? That's more often what we say, isn't it? Lord, we've got, a, we've got an idea, we've got a project in mind, we want you to bless what we're doing. When God's saying, I've got this thing over here I wanted you to do. You do this. I don't want to, do, I don't want to bless you in that. Do this, the thing I told you to do. You know, I, I, every now and then we get to, you know, as churches, you know, I, I remember this huge movement a few years ago where, where churches started coming up with all these clever mission statements about the things they were supposed to do. And this is our mission. This is our vision. These, and and, and you know, every church wanted to be different. Every church wanted to be unique. Everyone wanted to be distinct. And they said, we've got to come up with our mission statement. It's like your mission statement is in Matthew chapter 28. You know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. <laughs> you know, if you want to go back to the original mission statement, be fruitful and multiply and spread my glory throughout the earth. We don't have to come up with a new mission. We have a mission. We know what our mission is. It's the question is, will we do that or are we going to ask God to bless what we're doing? So, first, they were taking God for granted. Second, they were taking the enemy for granted. I mean, again, they, whatever, I mean, what, whatever happens in the days to come, this day was a big day for AI because they are the first people in 40 years to successfully stand up to the armies of this Yahweh. And Joshua knows that is bad for the reputation of the people and bad for the reputation of the army. I mean, what, what did it do to northern morale when, it, when the word got back to Pennsylvania, to, to, uh, to New York, that they had been routed at the Battle of First Bull Run? People were demoralized. What did it do in the South, in Richmond, in Atlanta? The morale ticked up. You know, that, that was a big day. We see it now. I mean, you know, right now, you know, we see it in Ukraine. You know, we see the, uh, right now the, the morale of the Ukrainians, even though they are terrified and fighting, is high. The Russian morale, you know, they're like, why did this, you know, why are we still here? Why are we still bogged down? Why isn't this over? You know, these things happen. So, you know, Joshua goes, you know, goes to the Lord and says, why is this happening? What have we done? And, he, and, and the good thing is, he comes to himself. He, you know, he, he stops and makes a course correction. He says, wait a minute. We are taking, we are not taking God seriously. We are taking God for granted. You know, not taking God seriously doesn't mean that we just ignore God. It means that sometimes we just take God for granted. I think that's the core of what the, the commandment about taking his name in vain means. Taking God's name in vain means taking, God, taking God's name, putting on a sticker, and putting it on whatever you do. Assuming that because I believe in God, that he endorses everything I do. That's taking God's name in vain. That's your one version of that. And that's what they had done. They just assumed, well, we've, we've beaten everybody else. God's always been with us. Why would he not be with us here? We won't bother him. We'll just go up there and we'll take this little, we'll take this little bitty town, this little bitty city. Okay? So that's one thing. Second thing um, is that they did not take the enemy seriously. They didn't take the enemy seriously. You know, we as Christians, we're guilty of that too. We just, sometimes we just don't take the enemy seriously. You know, when we... Yeah, we, we just assume, oh, well, 
that child grew up in a good Christian home. That man grew up, you know, he's a, he's a good Christian citizen. You know, it'll never, you know, it'll never happen here. It'll never happen in our culture. It'll never happen in America. We don't take the enemy seriously. You know, I, I will confess that that is one of my, one of my major failings. I don't know where it is. Uh, I don't know where my cell phone went. That's not such a bad thing. But, you know, I remember, you know, when, when my kids got their first cell phones, to me it was just a phone, right? What do you do with a phone? You call your friends, you call your parents. You, it never occurred to me that I was giving my kids a portal to everything I'd hoped to keep them away from. Sometimes we just don't take the enemy seriously. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we have an enemy. You know, James says it. Jesus says it. You know, you know who talks about the... We always, I, I have so many, uh, so many liberal friends who say, you know, well, you know, we're new, we, you know, if we believe in the New Testament, we shouldn't be scared of like, demons and things like that because, you know, because we just don't believe in those kinds of supernatural things. You know who talked about demons more than anybody else? Jesus. Jesus believed in demons. I'm going to believe in demons. I believe in the enemy, okay? Now, it doesn't mean that I give him victory. I don't, give, I don't take him too seriously, but I do take him seriously. But what's the other thing? Why, why were they defeated going up to Ai? Why, why did this whole thing go sideways? Well, there's one more thing that we, we've got to talk about, and that's the sin of Akan. The sin of Akan. Now, what did Akan do? He put the five-finger discount on some of the spoils of Jericho. And just kept them for himself. No big deal. Lots of stuff going on here. Nobody's going to miss this stuff. And so he took it. But the reason I bring that up is because that one sin undid the people. Remember, it's the people. But because he did that, the people broke faith with God. When we don't take sin seriously, it has results that we, that we never expect. I mean, again, it's kind of like I talked about last week, you know, kind of the little bit of manure and the brownie mix. When we don't take sin seriously, it fouls the whole thing. Can one man and one woman and their sin wreck it for anybody else? Absolutely. Their names were Adam and Eve and wrecked it for the whole human race. So, in addition to not taking God's sovereignty and His rulership, His authority seriously and taking Him for granted, in addition to not taking the enemy for granted, they didn't take, or at least Achan, did not take sin for granted. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. You want to know why you lost? Israel sinned. And I'm going to tell you, and he doesn't even tell him the guy's name. They have trans, they, these are all plurals, they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things. They've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. I mean, how often do we undermine ourselves in our own spiritual battles because we have, we have this little thing over here we don't want to deal with or we don't want to confess or we don't want to, we don't want to acknowledge you know, I mean, yeah, I'm a big hero for the Lord. I'm a pastor at First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio. But what have I got hidden over here in my tent, buried in the dirt? You don't want to know. Seriously, no. I mean, 
It's not that bad. I probably, we're, all, we're all good. Barbara Ann's chair of the personnel committee. She can vouch for me. Um, I hope. Actually, if she vouched for me, it would be like, yeah, he's a sinner. We know that. Um, no, but seriously, I mean, what do we have? What, what are those things we've got hidden back in the tent? We thought nobody would care about or nobody noticed and wasn't a big deal. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. You know, it just occurs to me, the last time he said, Consecrate yourselves, that was the whole circumcision day. <laughs> I bet you there were a lot of guys who were like, Not again. No, no. It's not what he meant. Not what he meant. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. So in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, and he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Why, why, didn't, why didn't God just say, tell Joshua, it was a con, go get him? Why not? So yeah, he's making an example. He wanted all of Israel to see what happens. And because, again... I guarantee you that even if Akan was the only one who took something from Jericho, I guarantee you wasn't the only one thinking it. Every single person who went into that city was thinking, hmm, I don't have one of those. I bet, I bet nobody would miss that. You know, you know how, many, how many Israelite men came into the city of Jericho and before killing the Canaanite women thought, mm, nobody will know. She'll be dead in a little while. I mean, again, war is horrible. So God wants to make sure that they understand that, this is, that sin is no joke. Sin is lethal. There's a reason that Paul says that the wages of sin is death. We see it all the time. And so Joshua does what he says. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe. And they eventually discovered Achan. And, Achan, and, and um, then Joshua said to Achan, verse 19, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now that you have done what you have done and do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua to tell all the people of Israel. And they laid, down, laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all of Israel took with him Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and his donkeys and the sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why do you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. 
and they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger, and therefore to this day the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. That is an absolutely horrifying, brutal picture. Again, think about this. For the sin of theft from God, for the sin of theft from God, they were not only stoned, they were burned. And if you read this story kind of as it goes sequentially, it was like they were stoned, burned, and then stoned again, like the ashes were stoned. This is how seriously God takes sin. But I want to say this again. I want to say, this is how, how seriously God takes even our petty sins. Okay, so, so just step back from that for a second. And now think about what Jesus Christ took for you, for me, for all of our petty sins. This is what is waiting for us when we defy God. And thus, Jesus took that from us. How seriously does God take sin? If you want to know how seriously God takes sin, look at the cross. That's how seriously our Lord takes our rebellion against Him and our cruelty and our indifference to one another. If not for Jesus Christ, we would be on that cross, we would be on the bottom of a pile of stones as smoldering ash. The lesson of this story of this chapter is we have got to take sin seriously. We've got to take God seriously. We have got to take the enemy seriously. Because these things are real. God's not playing around here. The beauty of the gospel is that rather than us being at the pile of stones burning, Jesus went to the cross for us. Again, until we appreciate the, rea the reality and the gravity of our sin, we're not going to appreciate really what Jesus did for us. Because otherwise it's just a felt board Sunday school story. It's just, an East, it's, it's, a, it's just an uncomfortable episode on the way to the Easter, uh, Easter buffet. But that's not what it is. God takes the sin and the representation of the holiness of his people seriously. So now we see that now it's been reset. The people understand <laughs> the gravity of what they've done. And... It's time for them to move on. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all of the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. See, I have given the, into your hand the, the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land, and you shall go up and do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its land and its, and its king. Only its spoils and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So here's what's interesting, you know, and we can read, we can read sort of the, the, the battle of AI as it happened, but it's, to me it's, it's a very fascinating sort of thing. This is actually, I have a very interesting book downstairs in my office by two, um, by two Israeli generals who teach at the, at the Israeli War College, and what they, it's, it's called the Great Battles of the Bible. 
And the Battle of Ai actually tactically, strategically, is a battle that is still studied today. Um, and it's a very interesting sort of thing because what they did, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting sort of intricate maneuver. And it, you know, I, I'm not sure of the exact military term, but, but basically here's what happens. He says, this is the plan. God says to Joshua, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all you remain ready. So the first thing that Joshua did was, here's the city of Ai right here. He had about 5,000 Israelites came and hid out behind the city. Okay? The next thing. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. So then Joshua was to send a force up to the city, you know, as if, okay, we're coming back. You scared away our 3,000 soldiers, but we're coming back in force. So they would come out here. So what would that do? And when, they, and when they come out against you, when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. So what are they, you know, what's happening here? So again, one, you know, one detachment is behind the city. One is approaching the city. The men of Ai are going to see them and think, well, here they come again. We had a good day yesterday. Let's go get them, boys. You know, now, now who's making the mistake and underestimating the enemy? Okay, so they, what happens? The men of Ai go out and they, and it, apparently they just empty the city of all their warriors because they figure that Baal is with us or somebody's with us or we're just tougher than they are, whatever it is. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city for they will say they are fleeing from us. So what happens? The Israelites here, when they see the guys from Ai, the soldiers from Ai coming out, what do they do? Oh no, it's the men of Ai again, let's run. And they all run, they all take off. It's like, we don't want them too fast because we want them to keep following us. And it's like, oh, oh, no, no, oh no, here they come again. And they're just, they're just teasing them. They're teasing them out. They come all the way out of the city. They get to about here. And what happens from there? So, that, so we will flee before them. And then, God, then Joshua says, then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city for the Lord, and God will give it into your hand. So as soon as you see all of the soldiers of Ai run out to chase these guys, that's when these guys run in and take the city. They run in and they take the city. Here's another diagram of it. It's a little bit more elaborate, but uh, there are lots of diagrams of this on the internet if you want to go see it. Um, but, but what happened? Okay, so... And as, soon, uh, and as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall set, set the city on fire, and you shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So again, during the night, Joshua set, sent one detachment of the soldiers to the west of Ai to lie in wait. The next morning, he led a second group north of Ai. And when the army of Ai attacked, the Israelites in the north pretended to scatter, only to turn on the enemy as the men were lying in ambush, moved in and burned the city. So when the men of Ai moved out, when they moved out of the city, when they were all out, these guys turned on them. These guys burned the city. The men of Ai were like, wait a minute. The city's on fire. Nobody's there to defend it. The, ar the army looks a lot bigger when, than it did a little while ago. And they were crushed between the two. So this is, I mean, this is a, a military strategy that has been studied and repeated hundreds of times hundreds of times since the original battle of AI. One of the great military uh, tactical victories um, uh, of history. 
So Joshua sent them out, and they did as was commanded. Now there is an interesting pat- uh, there's an interesting pattern if you look at verse 18. Um, the, then the Lord said to Joshua, "Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand." And Joshua stretched out the javelin, that's a, a spear, that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as they had, they, he had, as soon as he had stretched out his hand. They ran and entered the city and captured it, and they hurried to set the city on fire. Total victory, but I don't want you to miss the symbolism here. Here, ja- here is Joshua holding up the javelin, holding up through the whole battle. Do we, have we ever seen anything like that before? Yeah, Moses. The Red Sea, battle against the Amalekites. You know, it's, again, another Moses parallel. Just God... <laughs> You know, God doesn't do the exact same everything, exact same thing every time, but He does rhyme, and He's and He knows what works. And so we see this again, this continuity. So the people of Ai were completely routed, and Joshua and the Israelites won their second great victory. And verse twenty-five tells tells us then that all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. So 12,000 um, 12, um, were taken that day, or were, were killed that day. So Joshua burned Ai, verse 28, and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he handed the king of Ai, and excuse me, and he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised it over a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. So you have a monument to the victory of the people of Israel topped off with the former king. It's interesting as we continue to read through Joshua, the, the people of the, that will hear about this victory have heard about what happened to the king of Ai. And you'll see as a repeated refrain throughout the rest of the book, I don't want that to happen to me. If I'm the king of another, I don't want that to happen to me. <laughs> it's, you know, here, here is the Israelite shock and awe. Because it's, because it's fascinating. Yes, they still have battles to fight. But from here on out, those, those targets get a lot softer. Now, that's both good and bad because it also means a lot more mixing, a lot more, uh, a lot more syncretism, all those sorts of things. But, but you, do have some, you do have that happening. Now, What's fascinating, too, if you look at the, uh, the beginning of the next chapter, chapter 8, what happens at the beginning of chapter 8, the practical thing at this point would be to rest or to go directly to the next place. But, but having learned some important lessons about not taking God seriously, about not paying attention to what God, what God commands, in chapter 8, um, we also see that Joshua pulls the people away from their course so that they can go and worship. Here it says in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 30, At that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebel, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered, uh, they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the Law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, 
with their elders and officers and their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in the front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebel, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterwards, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. When did, when, tell me another time. What were some other times when Moses read the whole book of the law? Yeah, that's, that's basically the whole plot of the book of Deuteronomy. You know, here's, Mo, here's Joshua having his own kind of Deuteronomy moment. Not because he dictated it, but because God dictated it. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly and the, uh, of, of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So everybody heard this. So God, you know, having made this terrific mistake at Ai, Joshua now recommits, reconsecrates the people and says, okay, we don't want that to happen again. So you know, in God's providence, how does he work all these things out? I mean, don't we experience defeats in our lives? Don't those defeats usually come because we're arrogant or because, you know, sometimes, sometimes the things that happen to us happen to us because somebody does something to us. But most of my defeats, most of my failures are self-inflicted. Um, how often do I learn from those things? God gives us a great opportunity to learn from our mistakes if we'll take it. And here, this was a horrible price to pay in many cases, but, but then again, sin is a horrible thing. You know, uh, one of the things I said last night about the, the living Word of God is that, yes, sometimes sin, uh, excuse me, the Word of God stings. It cuts us to the heart. It makes us uncomfortable. It hurts a little bit to hear the things that we have done put there in black and white in the Word of God. And yes, you know, the word of God, the chastisement of God, the criticism of God, the correction of God stings. But we also have to remember that sin destroys. Sin kills. And he wants to teach us that lesson. He wants to teach us that when we stray from him, when we wander, because really what did the people of Israel, Israel do? In addition to Akan's sin, they strayed from out, out from under his guidance. They got out in front of God. The whole time, he's been saying, follow the ark, follow the tabernacle, follow the cloud, follow the pillar of fire. What did they do? Pfft, God's busy. We got this one. Watch this. You know, it's kind of all of a sudden, you're just like, you know, long-haired country boy Jewish people. They're, they're like, you know, hold my beer. We're going to try something. Let's go there. You know. But they are in that position where they've gotten out from in front, they've gotten out front of God, in front of their headlights, and God has said, No, I am your king, I am in charge, I will direct you. You must take that seriously, not take it for granted, because don't we take God for granted? We must take the enemy seriously because don't we think, oh, it's no big deal, I can lick this. Don't we take sin for granted? I don't care, you know, everybody's doing it. I'm not so bad, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. That's most people's savior. Remember, I'm, so, I'm saved by that guy. I'll be okay as long as I'm not as bad as that guy. So, this story, I think, is, you know, I think it came at an important time. The Israelites had had victory after victory, miracle after miracle, and then the other shoe dropped. 
because, not because God, I, I mean, of, of course, the Lord of heaven and earth knows all, commands all, controls all. But I don't think he had to set this up necessarily for them to fall back into sin and hubris and pride. But that's what they did. But in the end, what we see from Joshua and what we see from the people is that they repented. They rededicated themselves to the Lord and they got back on track. And what I love about that is that God keeps that door open. As a matter of fact, God actually, the Father, actually called them back into His grace, called them back into His presence. And that is an important thing for us to remember. So, any questions about the campaign at AI? Yes, Lola. Um, I, I think this time it was because, I, I think part of it is that I think that, that God was using some of that to build the treasury of Israel. To build the tre- I mean, so the spoils of Jericho, I think, were used to build the treasury of Israel. The, you know, allowing them this time to take spoils for themselves was, to, was you know, for their own personal, because one day they're going to be spreading out, settling the land, and they're going to need to have things, they're going to need that stuff to settle the land. Um, I, I mean, that's, I mean, it, again, it's like, ah, oh, you know, you, and it should bother us. We hate the idea that all these people die, but it's like, if I'm, if I'm looking at it coldly from the logic standpoint, I think that's, that's why he allowed them to plunder this city and not Jericho. I think Jericho was a much richer city. Lots more gold, lots more shiny things. I mean, this was a, this was a city that yeah, maybe, maybe the content of the city would be more helpful for settling the land. Some of that we just don't know. But that's, that's my suspicion. Any others? Good question. Good question. All right. Well, let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for teaching us real and moment-to-moment truth through the historical record of your word. Lord, we know that your word records real history, but it also breaks into our present because we have so many of the same challenges and problems of your people. Help us, O Lord, not to take the enemy for granted, not to take sin, not to not take sin for granted and to take it seriously. And Lord, most of all, help us not to take you for granted because you are our Savior. You are the one who makes us victorious. You are the one who saves us from ourselves. And through your Son, Jesus Christ, you are the one who saves us from our sin. So, Lord, thank you for giving us this time today. And bless us as we go forth from here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody.